My name is uh, Paddy, if you haven't met me yet. Um, I'll be reading from Revelation uh, 14, uh, 1 to 13. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000, who, uh, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb. And in their mouth, no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. These worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the command, uh, commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Amen. The psalmist writes, Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love towards us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Our God and Father, we praise you because you are praiseworthy. And we ask that as we study your word together this evening, that you would impress that upon each one of us. Help us to see how wonderful you are. We ask too that you would help us to see the world around us as it really is. And that in doing so, we would be equipped, enabled to live as faithful followers of the Lord Jesus. We ask these things for his name's sake. Amen. Well, um, one of the most iconic photographs ever taken, it was taken by a man called Jim Rosenthal. It's called Flag Raising on Iwo Jima. If you know the picture I'm talking about, you may, might be able to bring that image 
to your mind right now. It was taken at the climax of an important battle uh, during World War II on an island called Iwo Jima. And the, the photo is of five American Marines and one Navy corpsman, and they're all braced, standing at the top of a hill, holding aloft the American flag. And around 15 years ago, um, the Hollywood actor and director, Clint Eastwood, made a movie about that battle. It was called Flags of Our Fathers. And the movie told the story of the Battle of Iwo Jima through the lens of the six Americans involved in raising that flag. But there was something quite unusual about the film. Because another movie was released at around the same time. It was called Letters from Iwo Jima. And Letters from Iwo Jima was made by members of the same production team as that first film, Flags of Our Fathers. And it actually told the story of the same battle. But instead of looking at the battle through the lens of the American military, Letters from Iwo Jima told the story from the other side of the conflict. It looked at that same battle through the lens of the Japanese soldiers who were involved. One battle, two angles. And the reason that I mention that now is that that is kind of how Revelation chapters 13 and 14 work. They each paint a picture of the same global conflict. But each chapter puts a different warring party in the foreground. Now, the, the, the war it tells us about isn't fought with physical violence or arms. It's a spiritual war. But it might surprise you to know that you and I are caught up in it right now. It rages on even today. Now, we are in the middle of a series in the book of Revelation on Sunday evenings, and it's worth, I guess, fronting up to the fact that Revelation uses language and images that are unusual for us. They're different than what we might be used to. But those images don't mean that it's a science fiction story or, or that it's a fantasy story somehow. Nothing could be further from the truth, in fact. Revelation peels back the curtain of human history to show us things as they really are in the world. And one aspect of what it shows us is that right now, a spiritual war is raging. We looked at how that war broke out a couple of weeks ago in Revelation chapter 12. Satan was portrayed in Revelation 12 as a dragon. And that dragon was decisively defeated by Jesus' death on the cross. But although he was defeated, he wasn't destroyed. And in fact, he was enraged by that defeat. Just look with me. It should be on your service sheet, the first verse printed, chapter 12 and verse 17. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Satan decides to wage war on God's people. And in, in Revelation 13, the following chapter, 
we find out what that war is like. Revelation 13 reads like a, a military intelligence report. It tells us how the war is fought, what the dragon's tactics are. We thought about that last Sunday night. And what we saw is that Satan has deployed two beasts, two lieutenants, to do his dirty work on the earth. And the main focus of their attack on humanity is who people worship. That's the big focus of the war. The dragon's ultimate objective is to lead people away from worshipping the true God and into worshipping him. Satan is waging a war for the praise of the nations. And all of that helps us to understand the world that we live in. Because it means that the world isn't neutral when it comes to Jesus. We often think as though it is, don't we? That the world's like a, a kind of a blank slate, that it's, it's neutral ground when it comes to the Christian faith. But Revelation 13 says, no, no, that, that, that's not right. Satan and his forces are at work in the, right, in the world right now. And their aim is to steal people's worship away from God and to claim it for themselves. Now, it's important we, we don't mishear that. We shouldn't take it to mean that, that Satan is the only factor in play and that people are, are morally neutral or are all just pawns, because we definitely aren't. But it does help us to understand that there is far more to what's going on in the world around us than we might first think. And as we come to understand that, I guess I certainly found myself being sobered by it. I don't know about you. But Revelation 13 isn't the whole story. And it isn't the whole story for two reasons. Firstly, as we read on through chapter 14 and into the beginning of chapter 15, we find out how this worship war ends. Actually, it's worth looking at that for yourselves for a moment. Look on to chapter 15, verse 2. Again, that should be printed as one of the final verses on your service sheet. Chapter 15, verse 2. John writes this. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. Revelation 15, at least the first couple of verses, looks forward. It looks forward to the day when the beasts have been conquered, when this worship war is over and God, the true God, wins. So Revelation 13 isn't the whole story because firstly, we know how the war ends. But secondly, Revelation 13 isn't the whole story because we also have the rest of Revelation 14. Now, I'll make a confession. When I first read Revelation 14, and especially verses 1 to 5, I, I thought that it was a picture of the future, of the end of the worship war. That's how it reads initially, as though it's telling us about people who are with Jesus in heaven. That's what it sounds like. But that isn't what's being described. 
because the worship war doesn't end until the end of chapter 14, the beginning of chapter 15. And so these opening verses of Revelation 14 aren't a vision of the future. They tell us what's happening now. Let me put it another way. Reading Revelation 13 is like watching letters from Iwo Jima. It gives us one angle on the worship war that is raging right now. But reading these opening verses of Revelation 14 is like watching flags of our fathers. It's about the same conflict, the same battle, but it looks at it from a different angle. And when we see that that's what's going on, it becomes clear that Jesus has not lost the worship war, the battle for the praises of the nations. And we're going to think about that under our second heading this evening. The Lamb has not lost the worship war. See his faithful followers, verses 1 to 5. Now, as I've already mentioned, Revelation 13 is pretty overwhelming, really. It's full of the beasts and it's full of their schemes. And the dragon and his beasts are wooing people into worshipping him and they're destroying any who oppose them. And so as we read Revelation 13, it looks and feels like the worship war is going only one way. The dragon's goal to win the worship of all the people of the earth, well, it seems to be one-way traffic. His victory seems to be inevitable. But as soon as we move into chapter 14, the tide of the war turns. Just look down at chapter 14, verse 1 with me again. Then I looked, writes John, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. The beasts who dominate Revelation 13 drop out of the picture and into the frame steps the Lamb. And this is Jesus. The lamb is the main image used to describe him in the book of Revelation. But crucially, the lamb doesn't stand alone. Just look back at verse 1 with me and read on. Verse 1, on Mount Zion stood the lamb and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. The lamb is accompanied by 144,000 people. Now that isn't a a literal head count. It isn't a literal 144,000 people. It's a symbolic number. It symbolizes the whole people of God. If you want to do the maths, it's the 12 tribes of Israel who represent God's Old Testament people or Old Covenant people times the 12 apostles who represent his New Covenant people times 1,000. That's a number that represents vastness and exactness in apocalyptic literature. If you do that maths, then you're better at maths than I am. The answer is 144,000. And that change of personnel from chapter 13 into chapter 14 is really key. It's a really important marker because it shows that despite how fierce that onslaught has been all the way through Revelation 13, Satan isn't having his own way. The lamb hasn't lost the worship war. And the first proof of that in Revelation 14 is that the lamb's people are the lambs. 
That might sound like a, a pretty basic point, but it's an important one. And it's one that's made really strongly through the rest of these verses. Notice, for example, in verse 1, that the 144,000 have the Lamb's name written on their foreheads. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen the film uh, Toy Story or any of the, the hundreds of sequels that seem to keep being churned out since the original was made. It's a, a film or a series of films, I guess, about children's toys who come to life when you aren't looking and they kind of roam around your house and they have all sorts of adventures. It's actually um, a, a bit creepy when you think about it for too long. Don't dwell on that for, for too long. Uh, but all of the toys in those films are owned by a little boy called Andy. And when any of the toys get anxious or nervous or worried during any of their adventures, well, all they need to do is take a look down at the sole of their shoe. Why? Well, because to mark them out as his, as belonging to him, Andy has written his name on the bottom of their shoe. They belong to him and they've got the mark to prove it. And that's something like what's going on in Revelation 14. See, back in chapter 13, people who worship the beast take his mark. They are set apart as his, branded, if you like, with his name and number. And so they each represent another little victory for the dragon in this worship war. But here in chapter 14, we meet people who aren't marked by the beast, they are marked by the Lamb. The Lamb's people are the Lambs. And we see that same point being made again a couple of times through these verses. Look on to verse 5 with me, if you will. Because there we see that the, that the 144,000 have been redeemed from mankind, says John, as firstfruits. For who? For God and the Lamb point being made is that the lamb's people are the lambs not the beasts not the dragons the lambs and that has huge implications for the worship war see because they have been redeemed because they've been rescued by god they worship the lamb see that in verse 3 no one can learn the song they sing, verse 3, except the 144,000 who had been redeemed. And it all goes towards making the point that the Lamb has not lost the worship war. Now, you might be asking yourself, why does any of that matter? What difference does it make to us? Well, we know so far that Jesus has defeated the dragon. We saw that in chapter 12. By his death on the cross, Jesus' first victory over Satan is secure and nothing can change it. And we also know that Jesus will one day return and that he will conclusively defeat Satan and his beasts. See that at the beginning of chapter 15. The Lamb's final victory is secure. Those two points are fixed and nothing's going to change them. But between those two points, between that first victory and that final victory, well, it can feel like the dragon and his beasts are winning this worship war. 
are winning the war for the praises of the nations. That might be the sense we get when we read Revelation 13. And it might be the sense we get when we look at the world around us. Just take a step back for a moment and and have a think about the world we live in today. If there is a worship war going on for people's praises, a war for, for the worship of people all around the world, as John tells us there is, who do you think's winning? The dragon or the lamb? Well, it can often feel as though the dragon's winning, can't it? At least in our part of the world. Most people aren't worshipping Jesus. And in fact, it can feel like things are only heading in one direction, can't it? But Revelation 14 shows us that, well, that appearance is deceiving. Because despite what it might look like when we read Revelation 13, and despite what it might feel like when we look at the world around us, the Lamb has not lost the worship war. Jesus has not given up on winning the praises of the nations for himself. And we know that for sure because he has redeemed people for himself, people like you and me. He has rescued them, marked them with his name. The lamb has not lost the worship war because the lamb's people are the lambs. But there is another marker that the lamb hasn't lost the worship war in these verses. Because so far what I've described might make it sound as though the 144,000 are kind of robots or are kind of passive bystanders. But that isn't the sense in Revelation 14. Just look down with me to verse 4, for example. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Notice, firstly, the Lamb's people are virgins. Now, that isn't meant to be a literal thing. It's not that God only rescues celibate people. It's picking up a metaphor used in numerous places in the Bible that conveys the idea of fidelity to God, not two-timing him or or, or cheating on him by worshipping other gods, but remaining faithful to him. And in case we miss that that's what he's meaning, read on in verse 4. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. That same idea is conveyed in a number of different ways in these verses, but the overall point is clear. The 144,000, the lamb's people, are faithful followers. And again, that, that helps to sharpen how we think about this worship war. See, we saw last week that the dragon uses numerous tactics to to win people away from worshipping the true God. And one of those is is to engineer things such that Christians are excluded or or ostracized when they stick with Jesus. Actually, it's worth looking at that for yourselves. If you look back to chapter 13 and verse 16 for a minute, chapter 13 and verse 16, this is part of the devil's tactic No one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. The 
The picture is of people being excluded or kind of economically ostracized because they won't take the mark of the beast. They stick with Jesus. They're faithful to him. And being ostracized for being faithful to Jesus may well be familiar territory for some of us. We feel it at a kind of broad cultural level, don't we? Christians are often cast as standing on the wrong side of history over various issues, aren't we? Often hot potato cultural issues that change from generation to generation. And we feel it at a more personal level as well, I think. Maybe your experience as a Christian is being made to look or to feel like, well, you must be a bit of an idiot if you're going to follow Jesus. How could you follow Jesus in today's society? It's so outdated, so out of step with the culture. And so the temptation to make one small compromise here, another small compromise there, can start to creep in. I don't really need to stick with Jesus the whole hog when it comes to how I use my money or my body or how I approach my work. My colleagues don't really need to know that I'm a committed Christian or I don't need to speak about Jesus in public. If, if I keep my head down and I make one or two little compromises in how I live here or there, well, that should be enough just to kind of grease the wheels for me in life, to make life easier, to be a Christian. And after all, what difference does it really make? Well, Revelation pulls the curtain back on all of that. Helps us to see that there is a, a worship war going on in the world, a war for the praises of the nations. And it shows us that as Christians, we are not passive in that worship war. We engage by not compromising. Not trying to live with one foot in both camps but by sticking with him, remaining faithful to him, following Jesus wherever he goes. Or to pick up language used elsewhere in the New Testament, taking up a cross and following him. Now at times as a Christian, you might well feel as though the worship war is raging around you. Well, if you do, then just remember that is what it's meant to feel like. That is a Revelation 13 world. But also remember that it does not mean that Jesus has lost the worship war and that it doesn't matter what we do in the here and now. His people are his. He has rescued you. He has marked you as his own. And so as you feel that pull away from honoring him and towards honoring the beasts, one tiny compromise at a time, well, stand firm. Engage in that battle by following the Lamb wherever he goes. Stick with Jesus. That's our second point this evening. The Lamb has not lost the worship war. See his faithful followers. Now, um, verses 1 to 5 are a marker that, that the Lamb hasn't lost the worship war, that Revelation 13 wasn't the whole story. But as we move on through the chapter, we, we move kind of from, from what might feel like the back foot onto the front foot. We see not only has the lamb not lost the worship war, but we see that he takes the fight to the beasts. 
We'll look at that under our next heading this evening, verses 6 to 13. The Lamb fights the worship war. Now, in verses 6 to 13, there is a reversal. Three angels arrive on the scene. And if the beast's aim in chapter 13 is to steal people's worship from the one true God, well, the aim of these messengers is to take it back. Now, I want you to take a a moment just now, have a look at those verses, just for a moment on your own quietly. Have a quick scan through verses 6 to 13. And ask yourselves as you do, how do the angels fight back? How do God's uh, army fight back, if you will? Just take a moment to do that just now. I know that's probably not long enough to get even to the end of those verses. But can you start to see any similarities or continuities between each of those three angels? How is it that they fight back? Well, they fight back by speaking. Or to be more precise, by proclaiming. Let's look at that together. The first angel, verse 6, proclaims the eternal gospel, the good news about Jesus. And then notice what he commands everyone to do. Verse 7, worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. It's a call to right worship, not to follow the beasts, but to worship the one true God. That's the first angel. And the second and third angels explain why that is such a pressing matter, why it's such a pressing message. The second angel makes a declaration, verse 8. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. It's an announcement, a declaration of the impending downfall of Satan and his beasts. And we know that that's what it is, because firstly, Babylon was one of the enemies of God's people in the Old Testament. So it's an announcement about the destruction of the enemies of God's people. And we know that it's the beasts, because notice how Babylon is described. It is the one who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now, we've already seen faithfulness to God being spoken of in terms of sexual purity this evening, haven't we? Remember in verse 4, the Lamb's faithful followers were virgins. So what this angel is declaring, what he's proclaiming, is that the enemies of God, the dragon and his beasts, who've been deceiving people into worshipping them, will be defeated. They'll fall. That's the second angel, verse 8. And then we meet the third angel in verses 9 to 11. And the third angel's announcement, well, it's the one that probably piques our attention the most when we read through this chapter. Just look with me again at verses 10 and 11 for a moment. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest, day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image, 
and whoever receives the mark of its name. Now that is a description of the wrath of God. Eternal, conscious torment. And it's poured out on people who have rejected the worship of the one true God and have instead worshipped the beast. Now it's hard to read and it's hard to think about because we don't think about it in a vacuum, do we? When most of us read that or think about it, it's not abstract, it's not words on a page. We think of people we know, people we love, who don't know Jesus. And so if you're like me, it makes us anxious for them and it makes us really, really sad. But it isn't graphic just for the sake of being graphic or for shock purposes. It's graphic because it's a forewarning. It's telling us about what's really going to happen. And we need to know what's really going to happen. God will judge people who have rejected him. And that judgment is terrible. That's the third of the messages from those angels. The lamb fights the worship war through his proclaiming messengers. Now, what are we to do with all of that? Well, there are three kind of practical implications or applications that we'll spend the remaining few minutes we have together thinking about. And, and the first of those is particularly relevant to those of us who wouldn't describe ourselves as Christians. Now, if that is you, let me firstly say how pleased we are that, that you're either here or that you've tuned in. And let me also say that we do realize that this chapter of the Bible is really full on. But it is important. I recently watched a program about Joseph Stalin, the Soviet dictator from the first half of the 20th century. And one of the presenters of that program, having heard about some of the horrific things that Stalin had done, made the comment, there's a special place in hell reserved for him. I wonder if you've heard that kind of comment before. We do intuitively have a sense that there should be some kind of ultimate justice in the world. But we tend to think that it should be reserved for people we think are really bad. That isn't how Revelation 14 says that God's judgment works. See, the eternal torment we read about in Revelation 14, it isn't contingent on how relatively good or relatively bad you are compared to other people. It's contingent on whose mark you bear, whether you've trusted in Jesus and his cross and received his mark, or whether you've ignored God and thrown your lot in with the beast and taken his. Those are the only two categories of people in Revelation 14. Now, I'm conscious that might not seem all that fair to you. And in one sense, you're right. It isn't fair. But not for the reason you might think. Because the reality is, 
The Bible tells us that we all deserve to face the judgment we read about in Revelation 14. Every person on the planet has rejected our maker and worshipped other things. And so the only reason that any of us can bear the mark of the Lamb, the only reason that any of us are eternally safe from that judgment and can look forward to eternal blessing is because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Because on the cross, Jesus bore the just punishment for humanity's rebellion against our God. In other words, in in, in the words of Revelation 14, on the cross, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath. All so that anyone who trusts in him would not have to. Now, if you've never thought about any of that before, then can I please urge you to do so and to do so now. It is hands down the most important thing that you will ever do. God will judge those who don't bear his mark. There is no neutral ground when it comes to the God of the Bible. We need to make a decision about him. That's the first implication of these verses. But there are two other applications. And they are particularly kind of applicable to those of us who are Christians. One of those is implicit in the text and one of them is explicit. The first one, the, the, the implicit one, is to notice how it is that the lamb fights back in the worship war. Revelation 14 reads like an apocalyptic commentary on the book of Acts. Between that first victory on the cross and that final victory when he returns, this is how the lamb fights for the praises of the nations by his messengers telling people about him calling people to right worship. And as Christians, that is what we are called to do. Now we live in what often feels like a Revelation 13 world, and it can be hard just to be known as a Christian. And so the temptation might just be to hunker down and try and ride out the storm as best we can, but that is not what Revelation 14 would have us do. We open our mouths We tell people about Jesus. We call people to worship him. And we do so because he is the only one who is really worthy of our worship. And because one day he will return in judgment and in glory. That's one big application of these verses to to Christians, to be messengers. Or to use language that I guess might be familiar to some of us who've been around Chalmers for a while to take one step forward in evangelism. We fight the worship war by speaking, by calling people to rightly worship the one true God. That's the first application. And secondly, and more briefly, the second application to Christians comes in verse 12. Just read that again with me. Chapter 14, verse 12. Here, writes John, is a call for the endurance of the saints those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. This vision ends 
by landing on the application that's been cropping up again and again through Revelation. We saw it last week and we've already seen it this evening. A call to endure, to keep going, to remain faithful to Jesus. Now we know how the worship war began. Jesus won at the cross. And we know how the war will end. Jesus will win fully and finally when he returns. And in the meantime, Satan is waging a worship war. But when it might seem easier to side with the beast, to make one little compromise followed by another little compromise, well, here, says John, is a call for faithful endurance. He has won, and he will win. So stick with Jesus. Let me ask him for his help to do that now. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we praise you as the God of all things. And the only one who is worthy of our worship. We thank you that you defeated Satan and all the powers of evil at the cross and that one day they will be conquered altogether. And we pray that in the meantime, as he wages war on the earth, you would help us, help us to remain faithful to you as Christians in the midst of various pressures that will come our way. Help us to remain faithful in proclaiming the good news of Jesus to a world that so needs to hear it. And Lord, we ask that as we do so, that many people would turn. Turn from living a life in rejection of you and would instead trust in you. Would be marked with your name and would be with you on that last day, singing the song of the Lamb. We ask all these things in your precious name. Amen.